Hello, I'm Persia, and this is Eleven Again. Recently, I've been talking to my friends about the things that they were obsessed with as kids, what they would not stop reading or watching or listening to or playing. After they tell me, we talk about it, and then we go back and re-experience it, and then we talk about it more. Today, I'm talking with my friend Lauren, Lauren Shippen. She's also a podcaster. She actually created a show called The Bright Sessions. It's a fiction series. It's really, really good. And she wanted to talk about the film A Little Princess. I have to admit, I don't think I've ever even heard of this movie that you Really? That's amazing. It's kind of like, at least I thought maybe it would be like Little Woman, in which like I knew it was a thing that existed, but I didn't really have any interaction with it. It's funny. It has a, what year were you born? 94. Okay. So I think it might just be like a, like a, because I'm 91. So I think that it might be like a really like late 80s or like very early 90s, because there's definitely like a, a subset of women around my age for whom this movie was like very formative and important, but then other people who are also my age roughly have never heard of it before. Because when did this movie even come out? 95. 95. Okay. Well, then that doesn't make any sense because you were around. When it okay. But <laughs> I was, existed. I was one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't think I saw it probably for the first time until I was like, you know, the late 90s, probably until I was like seven or eight. It's, yeah, it's Alfonso Cuaron, who's, like, not a small-time director. No. I was just looking up his filmography because I think, honestly, the only movie I've seen by him is Prisoner of Azkaban. Yeah. I've been wanting to see Y tu mama tambien for, like, so long, and I just haven't gotten it together. I've never seen that either, actually. And I've heard very split things on Roma, which came out recently. It was, like, a big hit. It was on Netflix oh, and yeah. stuff. See, his his, like best film to me and one of my favorite movies of all time is Children of Men. I absolutely adore that movie, which is also a movie that like for the people who have seen it, it's like a deep obsession, <laughs> but most people have not seen it. <laughs> so take me back. You're seven or eight. You yeah. get the VHS. Yeah, it would have been the VHS. I Yeah, because I don't think we saw this in theaters because I would have been four years old. And I just, I it's so interesting because I remember very little about like the plot of this movie, but I just remember like it's a, it's about this girl who lives at an orphanage and kind of like a kind of a classic kid's tale in a lot of ways, like very like Matilda-esque, very... Like Dick- Dickensian? Yeah, exactly. Very Dick- Dickensian. It takes place in the 1800s and she... Or like early 1900s. I'm not entirely sure. I don't remember. It was written. Oh, it's World War One. So World War One. Okay. The book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. It's all going back to me now. <laughs> <laughs> the book originally was written in 1905. I honestly don't remember like the facts of this movie, other than like she is it in this orphanage. The like matron of the orphanage is very mean, and it's like about her sort of like wanting to feel like a princess and feeling loved and feeling a sense of belonging. And she has this friend who like, she also, who sort of has the same wishes. But then there are like these flashbacks to when she lives in like India, I want to say. Yeah, you're right. And then like there's this scene in the rain where she's like walking over this plank high above an alley in the rain and it's very tense. (laughs) (laughs) I just remember like, like being so emotionally invested in like this world and the journey of this girl and like her finding family and uh, like the thing that kind of brought it back into my memory was like a couple months ago, I saw like a gift set of it on 
Tumblr. And like just these like few frames of the movie were so viscerally memorable to me. Like I, I, I feel like I could like hear the sound design just even and the score just like looking at the gifs. And I think, you know, that's because it had like a really fantastic director who's like really knows what he's doing and and knew how to create a story in in these like very rich visual ideas. And it's just it's really stuck with me, even though like I don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember there being like a World War One plot. It gives me big um, Secret Garden vibes, yes. which was yeah, yeah, yeah. very much like extremely British colonial culture, which is like not something yes. that I think American kids in the 90s knew that much about, but like still were somehow inundated with. Like I read Ricky Ticky Tavi also when I was a kid. Oh my God. There's so much like weird British colonial like literature, especially like children's. I think the Brits do like to write a lot about like orphaned children going on an adventure, whatever something happens. Yeah. Babar too is I think very much. Yes. Babar I think is French. Yeah. But still very much like of a of a similar ilk, I would say. For sure. And I, I think that like so much of that stuff too and things, I think like a lot of like Roald Dahl stuff, like it's aimed towards kids, but it's very, very dark. Like I remember like a lot of this movie being very, very dark. Like just the, those themes of uh, uh, abandonment and cruelty and like being kind of cast aside as a child and like having to escape. Like I I think that's very common in, in children's stories and it's all very very dark yeah so you were saying you watched it the first time and it like sort of made an impact for you and then did you were you watching it over and over again or you were just yeah I it's it's interesting because I think that like I, th- I imagine a lot of people feel this way right where we don't remember the first time we saw something that we loved as a child because like my parents love telling the story of, of them bringing us to see the Lion King and having to leave halfway through the movie because when Mufasa died, I screamed my head off. And I was like four or five years old. It was the first movie I saw in theaters. I'm like, I don't remember that, you know, but I remember watching The Lion King over and over and over again. And yeah, A Little Princess, I remember, you know how like a lot of the 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 Disney movies were in those kind of like plasticky VHS yes. cases? Yes, like white, yeah. almost foamy ones. Yeah, that like clicked together in a really satisfying way. They were, they were great. Yeah, they were so good. This one was like a a cardboard sleeve, mm. you know, like open on the bottom and 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 the... the, the Slide tape. it out. Also a very gratifying feeling. Very true, yeah. And because I have an older sister and like so a lot of, you know, the stuff that we would watch would be stuff that we were watching together. And I, I remember it being sort of like a sick day movie. Like, you know, it, it's like middle of the day and you're kind of like wrapped up in a blanket on the couch and watching it. And what sort of... Because you said that it seemed really formative for you and other people of that time who were watching the movie, what about it, like, felt formative? There's something in it about, I think, like, the darkness and sort of dampness of this world that this girl lives in is, like, so, like, it's, yeah, it's very Dickensian. And, like, I don't know, there there, there was something about it that felt, like, very different from the rest of the movies that I was seeing at that time. Also, because I, I wasn't necessarily watching a lot of live-action movies. I think that was the other piece of it for me was I was mostly watching animated movies and then the live action movies that I liked were things like Homeward Bound where like the main characters were animals and there were no people on screen. Shocking that you liked Homeward Bound. You're like one of only two people I think who have seen that movie. (laughs) Homeward Bound and Milo and Otis. That's an even deeper cut. Milo and Otis I don't even know. I've never even Milo and Otis is about a cat and a pug that have to like it's a very it's a Homeward Bound but with but with just two animals instead of three and one of them is a cat. (laughs) 
and it's about it's about these these two animals who like form a friendship and then have to find their way home. But it's it's live action, like it's a real pug and a real cat. Oh, it's live action. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so like that, w- those were the movies that I was enjoying watching. Were like the things that either were centered on animals or animated movies that featured uh, human beings. And so A Little Princess was like one of the only live action people centric <laughs> movies that I liked. And I think it was because it was like such a strong character journey and I don't know, it just felt very real. I think I think it was like the realism of it com- in comparison to everything else that I was watching that felt really interesting and I I think it I think it was a movie that like felt mature without actually being too mature. And I think also just like the aesthetic of it was was hugely formative for me. Like I love Victorian shit, you know? Like <laughs> I love a high collar and like a rickety wooden house. Like that's <laughs> And I think that like a lot of that is comes from like both a little princess and then also Anastasia, which is a little bit later, but like was another very like important movie to me growing up in terms of like an orphaned gal who finds, you know, finds her own identity and 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 finds love. And I, I think something that really set a little princess apart from like every other human centric movie I was watching that time is that there is absolutely no romantic interest to speak of. They're just kids and they are focused on being kids and like being friends. I think it'll be interesting watching it now because like I'll, I wonder sort of, yeah, how the how the female friendship will read. And like I, there are a lot of things I'm curious how they'll read because uh, I think that probably the movie's a lot more problematic than I'm remembering. Do you, are you thinking of anything in particular that you can remember? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of like in my memory, there's a lot of romanticization of colonial like colonialism. Yeah. They lived in India for a time when she was a child before she was orphaned. Like, she is, like, a, a colonialist princess. <laughs> it's not great. Um, but, like, I also can't remember if if the movie, like, engages with that at all. Like, white people's colonizations of these places. Or if it's just, like, oh, well, you know, she and her dad loved living there. And that makes them better. You know? Like, I, I, I don't know exactly how it framed it. Because, obviously, when I was, like, six and watching this movie, I wasn't thinking about how I was engaging with, like, the history of colonialism. Um, I was just like, oh, there's an elephant. That's cool. <laughs> um, so, like, I, I'm really curious to watch it because that's something that that immediately occurred to me when I saw, like, that gift set was a bunch of those scenes which are, like, beautifully, like, visually so different from the rest of the movie because they're memories. I'm just thinking about, like, oh, man, what were those scenes saying? And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to, like, watch it again and sort of see that cultural conversation happening because I don't really remember – thinking much about it as a child other than like I thought the locales were interesting yeah and you mentioned the director a couple of times and like you really like his work did you sort of realize that you really liked that movie as a kid and then as an adult you were like oh who is this guy and looked back and like realized only in retrospect that that line existed for like your movie taste completely yeah like I it's funny I haven't seen really all that many of his movies i mean yeah i think i think like you said you know prisoner of azkaban i think is kind of how he became maybe more known to like our age group and 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 our demographic of of american viewers but i think i only made the connection like a couple years ago when someone was like writing about a little princess or something or i was talking to somebody about it and they mentioned it was alfonso curon and and i have been obsessed with him for like 13 years because specifically of children of men um, which I saw in theaters when I was 16 and like just 
like blew me away. Like that movie was like so formative to the way that like I consume media and the way that like I see film and 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 storytelling and it's just it's one of the best movies ever. And it's very underrated. Like I very few people have actually seen it. Um but everybody who sees it loves it because it's brilliant. And so I think then realizing that he had he had directed a little princess i was like oh that's like this is clearly he has a style that i really resonate with um even though these two movies are like so unbelievably different in terms of like tone and style and like subject matter so yeah i mean i should i should go and seek out his other movies because it's like whatever he's doing is clearly like speaking to some something in my soul despite the fact that like i actually didn't like the movie of prisoner Raskaban that much <laughs> It's funny. Now I'm feeling like maybe we should watch Children of Men too. I mean, 16 oh, is a man. very impressionable time to be taking yeah. in media, just like being in middle school is or even younger elementary school. And I've never seen it. I actually have a pretty strong memory, I think, of my parents going to see Children of Men at Philly has these like small independent theaters that are called like the Ritz. There's like Ritz East. Ritz at the Bourse. There's just like a couple of them in town. And for a while, those were the only movie theaters like in Center City for whatever reason. So my parents would go there all the time. Anyway, my memory of I have Children of Men is them going to see Children of Men at this like indie theater and then coming back and being like, I really liked it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Um, when I And I, I, I mean, 2006, yeah, I was pretty young, but I would like have remembered that. But I think the their coming away from it was like it's too it's too old for you. Yeah. I saw it with my sister. Like she she's three years older than me and I think she was just like interested in seeing it because she had a crush on Clive Owen at the time. <laughs> like uh, I think that's maybe why we saw it. And we both loved it, but like there's this one scene which is now very famous and I think now would probably be less impactful because of the way that film and television evolved from that moment. But he he does like a 15 or actually it's probably not that long like an 8 minute single shot tracking shot scene which now is extremely common in film and TV but like he was one of the first directors to like really make a point of doing that and and sort of i think kicked off that like renaissance in filmmaking of using the 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 one take tracking shot and i remember just like crying during that scene it's not a sad scene but just like there was something about the way that it was unfolding that just like punched me in the gut like I don't know it was just and my sister I was not a crier as a teenager like I very rarely cried at anything I so vividly remember my sister turning to me and being so freaked out she was like are you okay and I'm like yeah this is just really good I wasn't even like actively crying tears were just rolling down my face as I was like watching it was it was the only experience like that that I've had in a movie and it's a movie I've I've watched since and and holds up for me. And I've read the book that it's based on, and the, I've read the screenplay, the first draft, and like you know, I, I, it's something I've really delved into. I think it'll be interesting watching a Little Princess and seeing if I can like see bits of filmmaking that that Kieran likes, um, especially because I definitely know more about film now than I did when I saw either of those movies for the first time. For sure, I. Sort of in that vein, correct me if I'm wrong, but you originally were trying to be an actress. That's why you moved to LA, right? Yeah, yeah. And now you're a <laughs> podcast creator. Podcast. What do you actually say? Podcast. You're like a director, an I, actor. Yeah, I usually lead with writer. Writer. And then say like, I, I also produce and direct and, and sometimes still do act. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I was just, it just occurred to me, like, of course, like, you were actually interested in the film industry. Yeah. <laughs> in a bigger <laughs> sense uh, before you fell into podcasting. Yeah, and I think, I think probably, you know, movies like A Little Princess where I was seeing girls like me, you know, in in movies and like I, imagination is such a big piece of a little princess in my memory that like that kind of play acting that you do as a kid and and that was something that I really loved doing and me and my sister would perform musicals in our living room and so I think that piece of it definitely resonated as well okay cool I'm excited yeah. to watch I think I'm yeah I'm feeling I, pretty <laughs> revved up I, I think I might watch Children of Men too if I can find the time you should it's real it's really it's really worthwhile it really is it's very dystopic, so I'll I'll give that warning, but um, it's great. Yeah, considering the times. Yeah, and like early Chiwetel Ejiofor too, kind of before oh, he was like a big deal. Yeah, love that. yeah, love that for me to see. <laughs> yeah, uh, were there any any things that you like watched as a kid that now you look back on and you're like, this might be really problematic? Oh shit! Well, here's the thing that comes top of mind to me, but I can't, I'm not sure if I agree with it. I really, really loved um, Atlantis, The Lost Empire as a kid. Oh, such a good movie. That was like my favorite animated movie essentially for a while. And then just as an adult, sort of out of of curiosity, I looked up the Rotten Tomatoes for it and it was like a pretty poor showing. And I (laughs) I looked at the reviews and a lot of it was like, this is essentially a white savior trope interesting to the most degree like I I mean and I understand why like this white guy this like white nerdy dude comes into this you know the lost empire and he's like oh you don't know how to speak your own language I'll teach you yeah that's a really good point and I it's not that I disagree like obviously yes that's like bad I guess but I just think that the movie holds so many other merits yeah like, I think the, like, art direction is amazing. And I think the characters, like, that cast of characters, to make that many characters that are, like, interesting and have personalities and, like, that you like. And I don't know. that I, I think the movie still has a lot of merit to it besides that, like, issue with the main white savior trope of it. Yeah. No, I, I, th- I think that's – yeah, I think that that's a fair criticism. But also, like, that's – genuinely one of the most diverse casts in an animated movie from that era like and to your point like all the characters are so distinct and like their design and their personalities and yeah they really I mean they introduce you to a huge host of characters and you care about like every single one yeah so anyway one day maybe I'll do an Atlantis episode I have to find the right person (laughs) now I want to watch that movie too oh it's so good I actually haven't watched it in a bit but I bet it's on Disney plus Oh, yeah. I actually don't know what A Little Princess is on. I don't know Have you tracked yet? I okay. haven't. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll find out. We'll yeah. find it. <laughs> okay, talk to you after. Perfect. Magic has to be believed. That's the only way it's real. A little girl with a big imagination <laughs> lived in the faraway forests of India in a world filled with magic and her father's boundless love. You can be anything you want to be, my love. As long as you believe. What do you believe? That you are and always will be my little princess. When he was sent away. Goodbye, princess. Girls, say hello to our new arrival, Miss Sarah Crew. Hello, Sarah. Her belief in magic came to life. Come on, Becky. Just make believe it. Remember the magic? She would make some very special friends. 
Can you really talk to him, Sarah? Say hello to all my friends. Nowadays, I thought I would die until I heard you talk about the magic. And one very powerful enemy. I'm afraid jewelry and such finery are not allowed. Dear Papa, I love you with all of my heart and can't wait for the day when you come back to me. Everything you own now belongs to me. You're not a princess any longer. I did wind up watching both movies. I watched A Little Princess last night and I watched Children of Men this morning. Yes. Oh, that's an interesting way to start your week off. Yeah. Uh, really dark. So dark. <laughs> Cried during both movies. Yes. Oh, man, I'm so excited now. I'm even more excited to talk about this stuff than I was before. Oh, my God. Oh. Really rough. But because the tone for A Little Princess is... It's not that it's strange. I can't really put it into words because it is a little kid's movie. It is, but it was. There were so many things about it that like came flooding back to me in like full like tactile memory. And then there were so many things where I was like, oh, I didn't, I don't like remember there actually being scenes like of World War One. <laughs> like I don't yeah. remember it sort of being dark in the ways that it was dark because it very yeah it very much is a kids movie, but it also has it has a weirdness to it. I think that other movies of that era do not. Yeah, and I couldn't really put my finger on it and then I was reading I think it was actually the the Roger Ebert review about it and he was like, "Oh, it's magical realism." And I was like, "Oh, duh, it's magical realism." Yeah, that yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I don't well, know why I like didn't I don't know. I guess I think of magical realism mostly in the in a book context. I do too, I think. But like almost once I was like, oh, it's magical realism. It sort of clicked into my brain better because there's so much of that. Like like you say, like World War One battlefield scenes and like her walking around the streets of New York where, you know, there's like children beggars and stuff. You know, it's very yeah. Oliver Twist intercut with like fairy tales set on like a stage. Look, what looks like a soundstage, you know, yeah. like a, a set before we really get into it. I think we should set the plot stage a yes. little bit. So it is India-centric. It's actually very India-centric. Yeah. Um, she starts off living in India with her father. And then World War One starts and he's like, I have to go to war. So I'm putting you in like a girl's school. That your mother went to. And then it's kind of a riches to rags story. So she starts off like mm-hmm. really pampered and like put it on a pedestal at this girls school and then it turns out that her father is dead um has been killed in the war Mm -hmm. i mean the headmistress is just like starts off like vaguely villainous and then goes full villain like comically evil yeah like cruella (laughs) Deville is how i yes how i put it she even has like the cruella kind of hair yeah she has like like the one gray streak yeah yeah yeah, and and it's it's because her uh, Sarah, the main character, her father, who I did not remember this particular detail, and it's it was sort of funny to me. Um, he's like the owner of like a cracker empire. <laughs> it's just like they just sort of throw that in there. Yeah, just very silly detail. Um, he basically like all of his accounts get seized by the government, which like. I have some practical questions about, like, did he owe debts? Like, is that why the government seized his accounts? Or is it that, like, Sarah is only 10 years old and so she can't inherit? So, like, it's being put into a trap. Like, it's so unclear, like, why all of a sudden all of his money goes away. Yeah, why wouldn't he write a will to, like, provide for her in any sense? Seems negligent. It's 
it does seem very negligent. And so out of, I guess, spite of the fact that this this little girl is loved and the headmistress is not, the headmistress decides to, like, make her a servant girl and, and treat her terribly, which is where she refre- befriends Becky, the other servant girl. Right. And then, I mean, I don't know if this is spoilers, um, turns out <laughs> her dad is not dead. He he gets poisoned. There's, I guess, like some sort of chemical gas. Yeah, I didn't like I hadn't picked up on those parallels when I was a child of like Sarah t- is telling this story in sort of a serial format to the other girls at the school of this this Indian princess who is basically it's basically like a Sleeping Beauty style story where a, a prince who is I believe the actor who plays Sarah's father in blue paint I believe is it oh my <laughs> I god so. I did not realize that <laughs> I think I'm so. gonna look it up I gotta know because in the credits it was like it was like uh you know Captain Crew slash and then another character name and I was like wait is that the same guy oh my god I am so he's playing like a like a um Basically, what's what's framed? I don't know really anything about any Indian folklore, so I don't know if this is based off of a real oh like, Prince Indian Rama folktale, Prince Rama, yeah. But yeah, as she's telling the story to her classmates, she talks about how Prince Rama gets shot at by these poison arrows that release this gas into the air, and that scene is intercut with Sarah's father running through the trenches as I presume mustard gas is being thrown into the the trenches and so I was like that's a really interesting parallel the fact that she's like telling the story that is mimicking her father's experience in World War One that was like not a parallel that I picked up on when I was seven years old yeah so yeah he gets poisoned ba- basically by by mustard gas I guess yeah and so and someone else like in his unit dies and yeah the guy who dies in his unit is the son of the like girl school next door neighbor he's this is this or he lives across the street. And his son is in the same unit as Sarah's father. What a quinky dink. And <laughs> unfortunately, his son dies. And so they it's kind of a mix-up. They think that Sarah's father is this other guy's son. But, I mean, he goes to the hospital. He sees that it's not his son, but his manservant? That doesn't seem yeah. like a nice thing to say, but that seems Caretaker? to be... Caretaker? His guy that helps him... His guy that his he... His man helped. with a monkey. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so he has this guy. I don't know what their relationship is. He's like the mystical brown man. Like, yeah. that's just yeah. his role. He has a kind of swirly mustache and a monkey and is Indian. And he doesn't say much at all except for, like, the most banal, wise, mythical phrases. Yeah, like, he is the... It's it's so funny because of all of the sort of like colonial, colonialism romanization that I remember from this movie that like I was correct to assume existed. Um, the thing that I had forgotten about was this like cookie cutter, like mystical Eastern trope. It's like it, unbelievable, <laughs> like to a T. Like they they pulled it out of some like. 1920s minstrel show like it's just it's not good it's funny sometimes i feel like i don't know it's like that racism is over joke where it's like obviously racism is not over but sometimes i forget actually where (laughs) (laughs) i'm like oh yeah like you actually forget that these tropes existed and like existed to the t like it's not an over exaggeration it's not like 
this is actually the thing that Indian people were like, why am I portrayed this way and also in The Simpsons as the Quickie Mart guy and that's it. Yes, and that's it. That's the whole well, one. Like, and I, I think this is also such a, a great example of like why intersectional conversations are important, right? Because like, it's not like some some white American male director made this movie, right? It's a, it's a it's a Mexican director, and like you know that's in American film. There have also been like terrible tropes and stereotypes that white people have created of Mexican characters that like still are pervasive to this day, and that does not preclude a Mexican director from making a racist trope about an Indian person. You know, it's like anybody can be racist, yeah. and any everybody needs to interrogate. The ways in which which we perpetuate tropes because it really it was so much worse than I remember it being because I think I think it, when I was a child I was very fixated on the monkey because I loved animals and this monkey rocks oh you love the monkey <laughs> <laughs> the monkey's amazing the monkey and the baby elephant in the beginning the best oh yeah so anyway sorry to cap it off there's you know hijinks Sarah has to escape the girl's house before she's like thrown out onto the street and like literally runs into her father who has amnesia because he's been poisoned by mustard gas and then they have a very touching reunion and I cried. I also cried <laughs> at that part. <laughs> I was not expecting to, but it got me. He like runs out into the rain and is like yelling her and he's, name. He's like screaming he, like, her name remembers. and she's like jumps into his arms. <laughs> it's so sweet. She also, I mean, <laughs> it's I, really nice. I guess this is common, but you know, she calls him Papa instead of Dad. Yeah, yeah, it's really cute. Oh yeah. my god. <laughs> anyway, so that's the long story short of the structure of the movie. Um, going back to the beginning, it is set up the most romanticized version of colonial India. Completely. That is like beautiful. Like, is it lovely? Yes. Is it wrong to show colonial India? No. Is it fucked up to like romanticize it in this way? Yes. Yeah. It's like it's very much framed as like Sarah and her father live this perfect idyllic life in India that and like she doesn't want to leave. And it's like it's not at all interrogating like what are they doing there? <laughs> like who are these Indian people that they're hanging out with? Are they friends or do they work in this household? Like it, it's so unclear kind of what the relationship is because obviously like Captain Crew, her father being in the like food industry, the cracker and and industry. and Lynn crackers in the cracker industry. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm now reading into crack. <laughs> oh yeah, I I it's very it's so perfect, and like having this beautiful estate in India, it's like okay, so there's some some very clear like uh, spice empire stuff going on here that we're just like not addressing at all and it's a kids movie right like they're not necessarily going to like go deep into the way in which like the british colonized and, and oppressed indian people for hundreds of years but like it is it is very much like oh sarah and her father you know belong in india that's where they love living and it's like well you know who, whose land did they take? <laughs> um, she does have, like, what I was thinking, they show her bedroom. She always has the most beautiful bedrooms. Even the, like, creepy attic they stuff her in. I'm like, this is cool. Yeah. Like, I could make this work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, she has, like, a huge, like, French door window in the attic. I, it was, yeah. A little balcony that a monkey comes out. Like, it was it, amazing. Anyway, yeah. Listen. <laughs> um, her bedroom in India is, like, the biggest, like, princess canopy bed that I feel like every little girl at one point wants with, like, the drape and like it's very freely yeah. and then she gets to like run around in bare feet like around the grounds and like jump into the water with a baby elephant playing in it it's just like it, it yeah it, like it looks perfect it looks nice <laughs> but i wanted to also circle back to what you were saying about the the story parallels 
between the story that Sarah is telling and what's happening to her father. Um, so once Sarah gets to the girls' school, of course, there's, like, that power dynamic between her and, like, this other girl who may be hot shit. Yeah. But Sarah is, like, really, like, old school heroine number one. She's like, I'm going to win them over by being nice and pretty and confident and mm-hmm. a good storyteller. Yeah. She's like, through the power of storytelling, I can do anything. And 10 minutes before recording this with you, I was like, oh, my God, it's Lauren. (laughs) You know what? I'm glad you said it because that was was literally the thing I was about to launch into. (laughs) It's making so much sense to me. And and, do you ever watch something – from your childhood. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there have been so many things that you've encountered in doing this podcast that, like, you revisit and you're like, oh, that's why I am this way. <laughs> or that's why I resonated with this thing. Like, I yeah, I remember uh, a couple years ago seeing the Philadelphia story on the big screen for the first time because they, in L.A., when movie theaters were still a thing, they would do, you know, screenings of old movies from time to time. And, I, I, and that was a movie I watched all the time as a kid. And I just remember, or like, an, like a tween, I just remember watching it again at like 27 and being like oh okay so i've i've grafted my entire personality from Catherine hepburn in this movie okay <laughs> and this was another one of those instances where i where i realized like oh i i know why i loved this this movie so much as a kid and why it i think it became like a chicken and egg situation because i definitely was like at the age that i was watching this movie i was i was being bullied by these two girls in the playground for for what i was wearing to school because I, I, my mom would dress me in leggings and turtlenecks, which I feel like now would be like a very chic look for a six-year-old. But in the 1990s, the fact that I like didn't own a pair of jeans was like uh, the subject of much derision. And I would like escape sort of school by, you know, like reading books or by like playing make-believe by myself. And so this idea of imagination being a refuge from like mean peers or like mean adult figures, you know, like mean teachers, things like that, uh, I think really resonated with me when I was young. And then like just continued to perpetuate that of like, oh, I can make people like me by by imagination and the power of imagination. And I think I think ultimately like that's a that's a nice message to deliver to young people is like your imagination is something to cherish and to share with other people rather than like stifling imagination. Cause I think that that's something that like kids need to be encouraged to to yeah indulge in their imaginations I think that's important did you ever used to be like in that same way sort of like making up stories to tell to other people or like trying to organize plays to put on or like you know like choreographing your cousins in a dance to perform for the adults (laughs) kind of thing so I come from a family where like I didn't have to put on plays or choreograph my cousins because like my literal musical theater conductor uncle would be doing that <laughs> like he and his husband have both been working in musical theater for like 40 years and we would put oh, on wow. these shows and like little skits and things for family reunions and then me and my sister would perform musicals in our living room and, and stuff and yeah I was never the I was never the person to like Sarah gathering everybody around her and telling them a story is not something you would ever find me doing as a child because I was very, very shy and I didn't talk very much. And so it was more that I was like building stories for myself and then and then using that as like a little protective bubble. Definitely. 
when I got older, I they renovated it, but I used to have a closet in the laundry room in my house that I used to play in a lot. But not only did I play in the closet in the laundry room, I also had a box. So I sat in the box in a closet in the laundry room. <laughs> it was like the, the most cat thing you could possibly do. That's amazing. So you were not also gathering children around you to tell them a story. No, I had like a weird amalgam of different kinds of horse toys. Oh my God, the horse toys. Did you, the briar horses, <laughs> did you have those? No, I just had like accumulated different toy horses over, you know, like yeah. one's like My Little Pony, yeah. one's like Fancy, one's like the one from Mulan, one's like the horse from Zelda. <laughs> I, there's always one standing at the top of a mountain being like, come horse tribe, we must convene. That's amazing. Horse council. Yeah, I don't remember what happens there, but I always remember it kicked off with the horse council. <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. Imagination is very important for children. Yeah, that was the thing that was like, it just seemed like so old school in a way of just being like her skill to get people to like her is actually being like charming and warm and open and like good at storytelling. It was like nice. Yeah. And like she like takes, she like befriends the girl who is bullied by the mean girl and like and sues the girl who's like screaming and lost her mom. And she's like, I lost my mom too. And, you know, whenever I am, am sad, I think about her, you know, in heaven or, or whatever. Like these very, these very mature sort of ideas of, of care and empathy for other people that, yeah, it was really refreshing to see. Yeah. And she's like straight away like sees Becky who's – the servant girl who they're not allowed to talk to, who lives in the attic. I'm like, this poor girl, she's like, I don't know how old they're supposed to be. I don't know. Ten? They're like Yeah, like eight, nine, ten, somewhere eight, in nine, that. Yeah, maybe eight. They look so small yeah. sometimes. I know. They look so young. And I'm like, literally, how is she like not feral? Like she lives in the attic alone. She's not allowed to talk to anybody. And she cleans the whole house. Yeah. Yeah. She seems to be the only person like cleaning and serve like cooking in this huge mansion full of like 40 girls like how does yeah, that work very strange and yeah. sarah immediately is like hi becky you want to hang out what's going on with you and becky's like what no don't talk to me my guy <laughs> like you're gonna get me in trouble i and sarah's like what's racism we should be friends yeah. <laughs> which i it was interesting I, I i i didn't really remember like the the movie confronting the idea of of racism as directly as it did, I think, because like, I you know, I'm I'm white. I grew up in a very white neighborhood, and like, I don't think that at the time when I first saw this movie, I was like really engaging with like the idea of racism as a concept quite yet. But I, I think what, what's interesting is that when Becky is first introduced, Sarah like asks the other girls like why she can't talk to her, and the other girls are like, oh well, she's a servant and her skin is darker and doesn't that mean something? And Sarah sort of like gives them a look like, what are you talking about? And I thought it was interesting that they were acknowledging that like the reason that this girl is a servant and sort of a pariah to the rest of these students is because she's black and we're living in a racist society. But then the movie like never engages with that ever again. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I want you to. Yeah. And Sarah sort of brushes it aside like it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. She's like, she's and, why, and why should that matter? I'm surely my father will adopt her when he comes back. Right. Which like he does. But it's like, but it's, I, I would have loved to have seen like a little bit more engagement with that. Because I actually think that like this is an age group where absolutely you want to be talking to kids about 
racism, right? And the fact that racism exists and that it's something, you know, to fight against. But I, I, I do think it's interesting that they like acknowledge the intentional choice to make that character a black girl. Yeah. But then didn't really engage with the facts that like how Becky's experiences were being influenced by the fact that she was, you know, living in, in this in this house with all of these white people and was the only black person that, you know, was in, living in this house. I, I think, you know, similar to sort of the the mystical guru trope, like Becky very much falls into like the the black best friend trope of she's there and is, you know, it's acknowledged that she is having a different experience than the white lead character, but she's not really given like agency or a story of her own, which is is frustrating. Yeah, that's what I wrote. I was like, I want so much more from Becky. Like, give me yeah. any sort of backstory or yeah, like, she, like what happened to her parents? Any, like, yeah, she's just like kind of nice. Like, she doesn't even have like specifically a kind of personality. She's yeah. just like sweet and like nice, and in a shitty situation. Um, yeah, she loves Sarah's stories. Like, it's clear that she like also you know is driven by her imagination and loves the idea of magic and like she is you know a little bit more I think optimistic than Sarah at times which again like let's engage with like why you know why this girl is holding on to magic as an idea like why maybe that's comforting for her like yeah I would have loved to have had more of a dialogue in the movie with that I am glad that like she gets she and Sarah get to go off together at the end and like be sisters oh my god and they have such cute little outfits adorable little dresses and bows Oh, my God. It's very much like Madeline, you know, like Madeline, 12 girls in a row, Madeline, just with their little like drop waist schoolgirl uniforms, though these uniforms are aggressively green. There was a very big green green motif in the movie. And I was just kind of I didn't get any farther than that. I was just like, oh, yes, the green motif. Because the school is also green. Like, yeah, it was clearly a choice. (laughs) Um, But I don't know why. Yeah. No, I couldn't quite figure out past that. What does the green mean? Green. Maybe it was supposed to like mimic the the lushness of the Indian landscape that we see in the beginning of the fact that like you're in this industrial city and and this is the only natural color you see is on manufactured things. I don't know. I'm reaching. <laughs> I have no I have no guesses. <laughs> you're writing an English paper right now. <laughs> Just pull it out. Pull it out. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get to that word count. Do whatever you can. <laughs> exactly. Also, like yellow is a very yellow and orange is a very big thing in this movie as well. Like, because when um, I I don't even does he even have a name the the mystical manservant? <laughs> like, I think maybe Ra. No, Ram Das was that his name? Oh, may, maybe. Yes, because the the old guy does like say his name a couple times actually. I mean, this is where the magical realism comes into. It. I mean, he's he's always wearing like like very um, warm colors, like creams and oranges and yellows yeah. and reds, which like really contrasts nicely to like the grayness of the of the city. And then when one morning in the attic, Sarah and Becky wake up to their bedroom being like this beautiful plush like Indian palace, basically. Like all of their bedding has been changed. It's decorated. There's food everywhere. They're in these beautiful robes. 
And I had two thoughts with this scene, or three thoughts. The first was like, oh my gosh, I remember this as vividly as I remember that feast scene in Hook where they imagine the food. Oh, yeah. It's like both of those things are like living on the same street in my head. Because that's the thing. Sorry, the precursor to that scene is that they've just gotten in trouble. And there's a mismention. The headmistress is like, you guys are in big trouble and you're not going to get any food for like the next day and you can't do X, Y, and Z, whatever. Yeah. And sort of the night before they wake up to this amazing scene, Sarah's sort of taking Becky through and being like, well, we'll just imagine what we can eat. And then they start talking about the thing and then they go to sleep and they wake up with that. Yeah. And it's so, I and, and I remember thinking like, oh, is this, I didn't think about like the logistics of this when I watched this movie as a child, but like, is this, is this magic, right? Like, did they actually manifest this? Or is this the man across the street who, whose monkey like jumps over into the window, like th- over this alley. And so he can see them and stuff. And like he and Sarah like sort of, you know, smile at each other across the way. And so you, he's aware that like they're not living a very nice existence just across the way. Or did he like come in and give all this stuff to to them? In, in which, at which point I have a question of like, they're wearing new clothes. Like what happened here? <laughs> yeah, that I think that was the point where I was like, oh, it's just magical. It's just magical realism. Yeah. You're just sort of along for the ride. Because also, I mean, the whole, like, her dad having amnesia and then living next, like, recuperating next door and then she runs into him. I mean, that just, yeah, you know, it, it's just fairy tale esque to the extreme. Completely. Yeah. And it, I mean, the movie gets really dark because you sort of remember, like, the lack of social net that exists in society. So, like, when she, when her dad leaves her nothing and she's in New York and she has no family and she doesn't know anyone and this headmistress is like, uh, I'm just going to put you out on the street and then you'll be a beggar. Like, that's it for you. Well, and not only that, but she, like, because Sarah or really the, the other girls in the school, like, got Sarah's locket that was her mother's back from Miss Minchin's office. So, like, not even stealing something, like reclaiming one of her own possessions miss minchin decides to call the police on this like nine-year-old girl yeah they're just like okay yeah we'll throw them out sure we love to do that yeah you know kiran gives you like a little preview with sarah encountering like a, a begging family earlier who even like has you know there's a, a, a mother in that family but you sort of get a glimpse into what her and becky's life would be like if they got thrown out into yeah. the street um it's pretty bleak it's really bleak, yeah but then you get a happy ending Yes. Um, I did see that maybe that ending is different from the books. I actually didn't double check. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I've never read the original story. Yeah, potentially the book. Let me see if I can find it. Um, Oh, but the other thing is, I remember I was talking about uh, The Secret Garden. Yeah. Um, The person who wrote the book, Frances Hodgson Burnett, wrote The Secret Garden. Ah, yep. That explains it. Yeah. So (laughs) that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. Sorry, I'm in the Wikipedia. Um, I just zeroed in on this line. Sarah invites Becky to live with her and be her personal maid in much better living conditions than at Miss Minchin's. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. It's thankfully this movie makes it, at least in my interpretation, abundantly clear that like Sarah and Becky are going to live together at least in their household as equals. Like, obviously, as they get older, you know, presumably things become more complicated. But, but yeah, they're they're very much treated as, like, they're going off hand in hand in the end, which is nice. Framing it to... I think the, the changes they made were, were smart. Yeah. All right. Uh, so let's talk about Children of Men. Please. Oh, my goodness. 
I'm kidding. We can't do a deep dive, but it's, it's it was great. It was really like, okay. good. It yeah. was so cool. dark. It's very dark. Oh my god. It's like unbelievably bleak. <laughs> yeah, really bad. And also like particularly bad to watch these days. Yeah, I haven't watched it in probably three years. For, for a quick primer, for those that have not uh, seen it, it is based off a, no- uh, a novel as well, um, as A Little Princess is, uh, by P.D. James, who's most known for writing mysteries. And for whatever reason, this was like her one sci-fi novel. And it's about a future in which human beings can no longer procreate. And so we're just waiting for humanity to die off, basically. Um, yeah, super light and cheery stuff. The, the weirdest thing that I did realize halfway through the movie, I was like, that is actually a pretty weird idea which is if everybody stopped having kids there would be no more humans on earth in a hundred years yeah which is not that long <laughs> no when there becomes this this whole like cult of celebrity around the youngest person alive and like that's how the movie starts is that the youngest person alive has been assassinated and now there's a new person who's you know the youngest person alive and, and that, that person just like by the nature of their existence and the potential that they could be the last person on earth, which I think is just a really, it's interesting. It's not part of the world they dive that much into, but I think that bit of world building is really interesting. Yeah. I like the bait and switch they do with that because they sort of start, it's like a newscast and they call him baby baby Diego the whole time. And they're like, baby Diego has been stabbed after refusing to give an autograph. And you're like, baby, give autograph. And they're like, he was the youngest person on earth at 18 years, four months, 11, you know, and you're like, oh, he's old. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But also old is somehow still very young for this world. It it sets up the world uh, really, really well. I also want to give a shout out to Michael Caine for a fabulous performance. He wears the hell out of that wig. He really does. It's funny for like such a hopeless movie. I find it actually very like um, encouraging. Like I don't know. It's, it's a very. It's. I, it feels like a very real portrait of humanity in a very unflattering way. But then there are these little glimmers of base human wonder that like I literally am, I'm I'm getting chills right now just even thinking about a couple scenes in the movie. Like I fucking love that movie so much. Yeah. So they're trying to take this pregnant woman to like some safe harbor on this boat. She has her baby midway through the journey. And there's like a couple of scenes where people realize that she has a baby. And it's just like, I don't know, the biggest emotion that a human can possibly have, which is like wonder and amazement and like extreme nostalgia. Like people are like, oh my God, I forgot the way they look. I forgot the way they sound. Like, yeah, just like imagining the world where you never hear kids essentially and then like people hearing a baby crying like there's literally like bombing going outside like it there's huge swaths of like men with machine guns who just like stop and like stare because they're like oh my god a baby i literally can't imagine that feeling it's like and i say this without a single drop of irony one of the best scenes in all of cinema i think is that scene like that's the scene in in when I was watching it in, in theaters that like I just started spontaneously crying at because it was just like it's it's that long tracking shot. It's like, you know, eight minutes of, of just a single take and just through this this complete desolate war zone. And yeah, the, the wonder and joy and like after watching an hour and a half of like the worst of humanity – leaning into their worst impulses and sort of the breakdown of of empathy and care and respect for other humans this like 
reverence all of a sudden that everybody has for this mother carrying her child and like and I, I preface this by saying like I am not a person who likes babies <laughs> I don't ever want children I never know what to do with babies I'm not a person who like sees a baby on the street and is like that baby's cute I don't get it I really wow. don't I'm very much a baby person Interesting. Yeah, no, I really I, I have a I have a nephew and I love him dearly and he is he is the one baby that I love with all of my heart. And like I, yeah, I don't get it. I and I never have, especially when I was 16. I mean, not especially. I feel the same way actually now that I did then. <laughs> um, but this god, that fucking scene just gets me. I think what like Alfonso Cuaron is really good at doing in both of these movies, obviously in like very different scales and extremes is the idea of losing every little bit of hope that you have and being completely cornered and completely like there's just nowhere to turn there's no recourse and then against all odds there's like this little glimmer of hope that seems impossible right with her father not being dead and with a baby actually being born in this world like i think there's something about that that hitting rock bottom and just digging under a rock to find a little bit of hope that like is really powerful for me. Um, and I think he's, I think he's extremely good at keeping you in like a very dark place so that when he gives you that little bit of hope, it feels amazing. Definitely. That's what I was thinking, a sort of the up and the down of it, of giving you really nice scenes. And I, I'm sure everyone has this experience too when you're in a stress, when you're watching a, a stressful movie or a dark movie where as soon as something is going well, you're like, oh, no, something is about to go very wrong. <laughs> yeah. And that I feel like it, in some ways, both of those movies, both of uh, these movies did that. You sort of as soon as there's like a really nice scene where you're like, oh, it's everyone is happy and warm and well fed and they're having a nice moment. You're like, it's all going to go to shit. But they do they do both manage to like reach the other end in both yeah. films. Yeah, Children of Men with some compromises, but yeah. I, I think another scene in Children of Men that like just absolutely gets me every time with like how shocking and 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 good it is and the way that it's told is the scene in the car as they're like driving sort of on their initial escape, and it's I think the, almost the reverse of that where it's not like it's it's nice and comfortable where you start to wonder when things are going to go wrong. It's that. You sort of start to settle into like, okay, we've just done a bunch of exposition there. We're beginning a journey. We have some new characters who we who are now going to take us through the rest of the movie. And this is our little scene where we get to relax until the next thing. And then he immediately pulls the rug out from under you. And especially based on like the casting in this movie, like you expect a character to sort of be a much bigger role than they are. Yes, Julianne Moore. <laughs> yes. And he's just like, nope. She's gonna get shot in the head, and you're, and it's it, it's just it it sort of like jars you in a really effective way. I think, yeah, that character is like so her, like head of a terrorist organization, like extremely sexy, like her ex yes. can never get over her, yeah, large and in charge, hot. <laughs> Julianne Moore should just have her in her like bio, like head of a domestic terrorist organization, very sexy. <laughs> I love that. Oh, it really worked for me. <laughs> she is. She's really sexy in that movie. Like, what else is new? You get why Clive Owen is like never over it. Yeah, poor boy. Okay. Oh, thank you for watching these movies. <laughs> these very dark movies. It was a roller coaster, but I was on the ride. I'm glad. I'm glad. This was really fun. Yeah. Thank you for doing it. Um. I want to give you some room to talk about your upcoming projects. What's going on with you? 
Uh, what is going on with me? Um, currently, uh, depending on, on when this comes out, but in the month of October, we're releasing our uh, next Bright Session spinoff, The College Tapes on Luminary. And we're releasing it all in real time, um, which is bonkers. So you can go to thecollegetapes.com for more information about that or just find us on social media. And then my second book just came out a couple of weeks ago. It's called A Neon Darkness. And if you like dark things with just a little bit of hope, um, it, it is for you. It's a villain origin story. So it's it's a little bit dark, but um, but I think uh, I think fun, despite the fact that it's a little bit dark. And then... There are some more things coming in uh, in November, so just follow me at Lauren Chippen on all of the social media stuff. If you like this or anything Lauren does, feel free to share Eleven again and Lauren's podcast with friends. Please do. And um, this show also has a Twitter. It's just at Eleven Again Podcast. Uh, Eleven is one one two numbers one one again podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you. Bye.